You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Sick of those trivia podcasts that you don't even understand how to operate and they just have too many levers and buttons? There's got to be a better way. Now there is with Good Job Brain, an offbeat quiz show and trivia podcast that makes learning new things easy and fun. I just learned that artificial vanilla flavoring sometimes comes from the anal glands of a beaver, and now I can never shake that mental image. Thanks, Good Job Brain. Good Job Brain is available for the low price of just four easy payments of free. It's a podcast. Good Job Brain is part of Airwave Media and available on all podcast apps. Operators are standing by. Hold your ears, folks. It's showtime. People pay good money to see this movie. When they go out to a theater, they want cold sodas, hot popcorn, and no monsters in the projection booth. Everyone pretend podcasting isn't boring. Turn it off.
Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me once again is Mr. Colin Gallagher. Howdy, and thank you for having me back. Also back in the booth is Mr. Chris Dashew. I promise while I look like Klaus Kinski, I am not, in fact, Klaus Kinski. We are kicking off Spaghetti Western Month with perhaps not one of the best-known Spaghetti Westerns of all time, but a personal favorite, Matalo, also known as Kill Him. It's a little tough to sum this one up. There's a group of outlaws, there's a ghost town, maybe there's real ghosts, and eventually Lou Castell shows up wearing a paisley coat and wielding one of the strangest weapons I've seen a Spaghetti Western protagonist wield. We will be talking about all that as we go along, so if you don't want anything ruined, please turn off the podcast and come back after you've seen the film. So, Colin, was this a first-time watch for you? No, I had seen it a few times before. I think the first was at Spectacle here in Brooklyn in 2014. They did a series of Italian films. And the next might have been when you showed it, Mike, on one of your uh, projection booth watch parties. And Chris, how about yourself? This is the first time I saw it. You know, Mike, when I come on the projection booth, a lot of the time it's me Stepping outside of my comfort zone, this is not, not outside of my comfort zone that much. This is, you know, it's a Spaghetti Western, which I have seen Spaghetti Westerns before, just not this particular one. So this was a first watch for me. The thing that's strange about this movie is it it, it has this weird pacing issue where, like, the first half of the movie and the second half of the movie are almost different movies in a way. Like, maybe the first third of the movie... And then the two-thirds is like kind of like the other characters that just show up. It has that weird structure to it that the first time I watched it, I was like, wait, and okay, so now we're with a different group of characters, fine. But I watched it three times now. It went from okay to it's okay. It's, it's pretty good. It's pretty good. I mean, look, the thing with the boomerang is ingenious. Who's going to argue that? Not me. It's funny that's your uh, first impression, Chris, because I – I sort of had the opposite. The first time I saw it, I absolutely fell in love with this. And I adore American Westerns. And perhaps for some reason, I was actually really slow to like a lot of the Euro Westerns outside of, you know, obvious classics like the Sergio Leone films. But the first time I saw this one at Spectacle, it was just so startlingly different than anything I had seen before in extreme in its style that I I just fell immediately in love with it. And I, I think what I really responded to was it's very much a primal film, the Western reduced to the barest, most abstract elements. To me, in a lot of ways, it seemed very like semiotical, the way that it has all these signs and signifiers but nothing's really explained, and we're just supposed to infer meaning from all of these signs throughout the movie. The only word I could think of is just uncompromising. It reminds me a lot of another Western that is as uncompromising in its vision of what he, the director, believes the West to be, which is El Topo. This movie has a DNA connection to that film. And this may be jumping the gun 10, 20 minutes from now, but... That, I mean, I, I see what you're saying, Cullen, and I 100% agree with you. It has that feel to it that, like, just go with it. It's, you're, you're just here. Just, it, you're all along for this ride, whatever this ride may be, and it's going to be whatever the director wants to present to you. And it also has DNA to another movie. And again, this might be jumping the gun, but it's based on a previous spaghetti western, Kill the Wickets. It's from 67. It's 
the original Italian is called Dio non paga il sabato, translated as God doesn't pay on Saturday. It was directed by Tanyo Boccia, who was credited as Amerigo Antono and written by Mino Roli, who was credited as Mike Ashley. And it's essentially the same outline, like, you know, it begins with a hanging, concludes with the same sort of shootout and it hits the same beats, but it really lacks that eccentric style, as well as the boomerangs. It's a terrific movie. It's really fun. But the style just takes this in a whole other direction. It's wildly different that way. This was directed by Cesare Canavetti, and you hooked me up with quite a few of his films. And this was the only one I had seen for a long time. And seeing the other films, I can see he definitely has things that he likes to do. And this movie really has those in spades. The whole idea of the quick cutting, the close-ups, the weird angles that he goes for. It's very, very psychedelic, the way that the images are presented to us. And even when you've got a character like looking through a multifaceted glass ornament, it looks like, and then us seeing through that, I mean, it's very much like, let's try to be as trippy as we possibly can be. The other two elements I kept thinking about in relation to his other movies are voyeurism and torture. He loves to have characters looking at each other in a hyena in the safe. There's always like television monitors spying on people. And in multiple movies, especially Gestapo's Last Orgy, it's lots of torture. Gestapo's Last Orgy is pretty much nothing but torture for 90 minutes. Essentially, that movie, if you don't want to watch it, and I understand why someone wouldn't. It is the first half is Sallow, and the second half is The Night Porter, but nowhere near as well done as those movies. Um, but maybe it's <laughs> uh, the subject matter is uh, very easy to turn one's stomach, as um, it probably was intended to. I was expecting you to say, and it's just a dash of the producers there at the end. It's a rousing musical end for Springtime to Hitler at the end. Well, it's funny you mentioned that because. Especially on rewatches of Matalo, I noticed more of a sense of humor that I did not I did not see in his other movies. I don't know, Mike, if you thought the other movies had humor to them. I was laughing at Hyena and a Safe quite a few times. I really enjoyed that movie. I thought that was fantastic. Especially the the low angles when the one character is playing the piano and that kind of yeah. discordant way and just oh I really like that. And the, I mean we should talk about the music in this too. It's just it is some of the best fuzz rock psychedelia type of stuff. I mean, this score is fantastic. I am going to be uh finding a copy of the soundtrack one way or another as soon as we finish this podcast. Luckily, it's out there. You can get the CD of this. It is not impossible to find, which is a great way to get introduced to this film because that music is so good. Not only is the music good, it is essentially what I think of when I think of early 70s psychedelia rock. It is like stereotypically psychedelia rock which which works so well in this film which makes me wonder how well psychedelia rock would have worked in westerns all the time you get those great guitars and things like once upon a time in the west but in here it's just like it's a different brand of music and some of the sounds that they use in this too i mean especially there's a, a swing that plays a major part in this and the screeching from that swing will just put your nerves right on edge 
Are you familiar with the composer Mario Miliardi? I didn't know his other work, and especially on repeat viewings, this seems dis- a little different than like the Morricone, you know, vein of soundtracks that were really popular at the time. I I kept thinking of Penderecki and Zanakis and people that used a lot more like atonal chords and that used a lot of noise to be like abrasive. And then someone like Tori Takemitsu, the Japanese composer who used a lot of ambient sounds and percussion to, you know, give it a really like theatrical is not the right word, but this, uh, I don't know, this really like ghostly, you know, ambient uh, effect. And I, I thought it was really effective for this movie. Yeah, I would like to see more movies with him doing the soundtrack. Uh, I want to see Shoot the Living and Pray for the Dead. And I'm not sure what this one translates as, but El Venditore di Morte. So it sounds like the seller of death. And those. That's a good title. I know for sure Klaus Kinski is in one of them. I think he's in both. Okay. Which is why I want to watch it. Because I was, again, I mentioned it in the first thing I said on this show. It looks like Klaus Kinski on the poster for Matalo. If you look at it too fast, it really does. That poster is kind of deceiving, too, because it is Corrado Pani, who plays the Burt character, who's basically our, I don't want to say protagonist, but he's the star of the show in the first half of the film. But yet it says Lou Castell right next to him. So I always thought that that was Lou Castell. And I was like, no, no, no. Lou Castell is our protagonist in the second half of the film. Very much, you know, you were talking about El Topo. And I always think of that as having very distinct acts, especially when the second half of the film starts and El Topo is there with the shaved head and everything. This film is very much the same in that we have Corrado Pani in the first half, Lucas Dell in the second half, and then eventually their paths cross. But it's kind of a surprise that Corrado Pani is, is still there because he essentially dies in one part and then kind of comes back as a ghost, but not really a ghost. He's just hiding out. And so it's, it's, it's interesting that we have two I'll put them in quotes, ghosts in this film, because when they first get to this ghost town, there's the old woman, Constance Benson, who is going around with a rifle and you never see her face until eventually they reveal who she is. And then she's almost replaced by Bert, who is also going around with a rifle and you don't see his face. It feels like this film is very haunted. It feels like a horror Western. That's a really good way to describe it, especially the style, the way they play with missing characters and shadows. And so many times the camera seems to take this sort of like spectral perspective with either the way it moves, sort of the way it cuts. It's like it's like a point of view of somebody, but you don't see who they're looking at. When you get those shot cuts of the eyes with that little electronic kind of noise that goes on throughout so much of it, like there's a part, I think it's when Bert is on that swing I was talking about, and you just keep getting like these flashes of eyes, and you're like, what the hell's going on? And you're going to get that through a few more times in the film, even when it's not him. And I guess it was... Maybe Mrs. Benson looking, but you're talking about voyeurism. That's right there as well, having these shots of these eyes. You get that even in the opening scene of the movie. I think the very first shots are these extreme zooms of the town. So there's no establishing shot. You just see all these out-of-focus characters right in the foreground. And you look a little bit in the background. It's almost as if you're like spying on this town. 
And that's sort of the first clue that somebody is spying and watching what's going on, but you don't know that for like a little bit into the scene until all hell breaks loose. We're being dropped into the middle of the story as well, because I love how you described it, that extreme zoom. And you can see in the background a casket being loaded onto a wagon. You see a woman who's dressed all in black. And then you start to get more of her. And it's like, okay, what's going on with this woman? It's like there's this whole thing that's going on. Like we have this backstory that we're really never going to get. And then we see, you know, Bert being led out to the gallows and I love him and his interaction with the priest and the priest is reading, you know, last rites and it's all in Latin. So I'm just like, where the fuck are the subtitles for this? Et secundum multitudinem miserationum tuarum dele iniquitate. Amplius, amplius lava mea, abiniquitate mea, et a peccato mea, munda me. Uoniam iniquitatem meam, ego cognosco, et peccatum meum contra me, et semper. Miseriatum. I found an Italian print of the film, and it's exactly the same other than, obviously, the opening credits, which the opening credits are strange because these are not over- images. These are white over black, just text, which is kind of strange. And I'm thinking like, oh, did they just tack this on, you know, in the video? And then I found this Italian print and same font. I think it was like red on black rather than white on black, same order, but it was all in Italian. And then when it opens up on that image of the sun, there's a title card that comes out and it says in English, there are only two good men. One is dead. The other is yet to be born. And then the movie starts properly, and then it's the exact same film. If anybody from Kino or Arrow or Indicator is listening, um, a Blu-ray of this would be very nice. That would be really good. How many times have we said that this year? Quite a few. I want to know, because I've said that on my own podcast with Cullen on it. So, And I think we've said it before at least once this year, Mike. You're finding a lot of good stuff this year, Mike. I think this film has a lot of crossover appeal. There are people out here who deserve to see this movie because a lot of people would be into this kind of movie. I agree with you, Chris. I seem to remember you guys bringing that up a few times on the, what was the the theme of the month? But it was basically like Colin Picks, right? And, yeah, and, the noir films. Yeah. Yes. Thank you. And I remember a couple of those who were just like, man, this was beat to shit. It'd be so nice to see a restored version of this. Oh, yeah, it was... Uh, the oh, kill-off. The kill-off, yeah, that looked like it was filmed with a lens covered in mud. Which is very... I mean, you know, it's like this, right? It's like, wherever they're getting it from is not the best quality that they can get. You should have seen the very first time I watched this movie because it was a fan edit that somebody did, or like a fan restoration, so it was... The English track, but then it was partially one cut of it and partially another cut of it. And whoever did it, like, cut it all together, put the English over it. And so every once in a while, the English would start to slip. So they would be uh, not necessarily in line. And then every once in a while, there would be parts that there wasn't English for, and they would just start speaking Italian. And it's like, oh, okay, what the hell's going on here? <laughs> So this version that is now on DVD from, I think, Wild East looks really good compared to what I saw originally. But yeah, I agree. It could look a whole lot better. I was looking around on YouTube for stuff about the film. 
the film's on YouTube in its entirety, but a lot of the music is cut out. Large swaths of music are cut out. I've seen this with other movies. When someone uploads a movie, if this music is tagged as copyrighted, one of the options is to just have the copyrighted portions drop out. Yeah, so that's what I think is happening to the one on YouTube, which is funny, because when I was watching it, I was like, huh, well, it's still a movie, but all of a sudden, when they're riding their horses on the high plains, it's just literally silent. (laughs) Completely silent. And again, if you've seen this movie, you'll know in the first third half of this movie, however we want to look at it, there's not a lot of dialogue. I mean, there's not a lot of dialogue in this movie otherwise. So in the beginning 20, 30 minutes of this movie, it's like 10 full minutes of silence. The other thing I noticed, too, is that they're being very careful to not show people talking. Like, I noticed a lot of times that characters will speak when they're off screen or when their mouths are obscured. It reminded me a lot of, like, the old cartoon Danger Mouse, where it was like, oh, it's too expensive for us to uh, animate lip flaps, so we'll just have Danger Mouse look down when he's speaking so you don't see his mouth move. With this, I'm not sure if it was just like, we don't have time to really sync the dialogue or whatever, but I just noticed there were so many times where the person speaking is not the one that we're looking at. I reckon you're probably right, Mike, that it's a cost-saving measure, that it's a lot easier to edit when you don't have to, and do the voiceovers when you don't have to think about syncing the lips, because Italian movies do all of the audio in post-production anyway, and this this would have been dubbed both into Italian and English. And I think this got released as well in France and Germany. I've seen posters for it in those countries as well. So I don't know how well this did box office wise, but at least it was out there for the audiences to see. Because this was kind of, as far as my reckoning goes, this is quite a few years after the Spaghetti Western boom started. But I think we still had a few more years to go before it was going to wrap up. We haven't even really talked about the opening scene. It reminded me a little bit of uh, The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. This whole idea of the guy who's about to be hanged. And in that one, you know, it's Eli Wallach, and then he's got bright eyes or whatever hanging out, um, watching over him. There's a, or, or an angel watching over him as well, because uh, Lee Van Cleef is looking out um, and, and checking out the scene as well. But with this, it's this band of outlaws that come in and rescue him. And then he manages to ride out with them, and they're like, okay, well, thanks for the money, for saving you, and we're going to take off now. And then he massacres the entire band all by himself, which is just amazing. And the thing that I love the most, other than the crazy voiceover that comes in, I think only one time in this movie where we get Bert's POV, right? He's got a thing, and I noticed this so much last night. He's kind of like uh, Joe Shishido in uh, Branded to Kill. He loves the smell of gunpowder, and every time he shoots his gun, he'll sniff that gun, and he just takes a big whiff, and there's just like a couple like little occasions where he'll just run the gun past his nose, and it's like, wow, this guy really likes that odor. It's a nice little like perverse touch. An unusual perverse touch. Howdy, folks. I'm Bert. Because that opening scene, you know, after they rescue him from, you know, being, you know, lynched, they kill everybody in the town. The widow, who obviously had some sort of love affair with Bert, kills herself. 
And the only person left standing in town is the priest who's just like giving everyone their last rites, <laughs> all the corpses lying around. Then, Mike, as you pointed out, he turns on all the people who just, you know, rescued him, kills them all and steals the money. And then he comes on doing this like really jokey, comical self-address to the audience, you know, giving his father's advice. Money's like ripe fruit on a tree. All you have to do is reach out and grab it before someone else does. It's like some, like, leave it to beaver crap or something. And this, as you pointed out, Mike, this never happens again. <laughs> no. We start with the voiceover with this guy and we never get back to it. It's like, okay. And those are the sort of moments that, to me, this movie sort of becomes, like, weirdly, like, theoretical. It's just like he's sort of taken this element from, like... TV westerns or something. Well, this is what some westerns have, so we're going to have this part. And you get these characters that don't really fit. So he eventually heads north to Colorado, and that's where the soundtrack kicks in again, and it there's like a goblin edge to it when it comes up, so this is like the first hint of like, this is not going to be your typical western. He heads north, and he meets up with his two boys, uh, Phil and Ted, and Phil looks like a pretty typical Western heavy, but then Ted in this lambskin vest that he's wearing, and he's always got like stuff like beads and stuff hanging around his neck. And he's got this receding hairline with too long a hair trying to like cover it up and stuff. But he looks like he's a hippie. It looks like there's a hippie that escaped and made it into this movie. That jacket is just so shaggy and ragged. It looks like it's was cut off. A lamb, like it's still partly alive. <laughs> it does not look like it's actually well made. I like how they make fun of him, too. Like when uh, Bert shoots a rabbit and they're like, oh, you should make a hat out of that. And then we get our fourth person that shows up, which is uh, Mary, this gorgeous woman, Claudia Gravy. Uh, I'm surprised that that's a real name, and I have a feeling it's not. Right, Gravy. Gravy. <laughs> Come on, Mike. She is playing this long con of she's kind of dating Phil, but then she's teasing Ted, but then at the end you find that she's really Bert's girl, and it's just going one to the other to the other and just playing everybody off of each other, which I really appreciated. Well, it reminds me of uh, one of the two Clint Eastwood ones, which he starts pitting the families against each other by working for both of them. There is always going to be one person out for ostensibly themselves. Mary's costume kept reminding me of, like, Raquel Welch in, you know, like, either, like, Hanny Calder or, like, 100 Rifle. She had that sort of vibe and, like, even her hair. John Wayne don't have anything on her fringe game. Hello. Wow. What about, what about Corrado Pawnee's poncho? Poncho has a life of its own. Or his, I guess, his, his, his serape or his throw that he keeps over himself that he, in one scene, essentially does a backflip. And he's, like, hiding underneath it. I mean, that's the scene from the poster where he looks like Klaus Kinski. Well, in that super tight green shirt that he's wearing, right. it just, again, it just doesn't feel like era appropriate, but I love it. I love it because it's not era appropriate. Speaking of era appropriate, the fact that the character played by Lou Castell of Ray, his weapon of choice is Boomerang. Yeah, I love that there's Ray, and then there's the other girl, and I'm trying to think if she even gets a name, but they just, like, happen to be out in the desert. It's not like they ever have a purpose. Like, she was riding someplace with her husband, 
and I guess the husband died, her horse fell, the wagon wheel came off. So the first time we see her, she's shooting her horse. So she's just kind of wandering in the desert and meets up with Ray, who is very much wandering in the desert. I, they ask him what he's doing, and he doesn't really have a good answer. It sounds like he was just moseying along kind of thing. Yeah, her name is Bridget. The scene where all these people are introduced is really interesting structurally. And Chris, I think this is the moment when it shifts from movie one to movie two, because Mary has engineered this holdup of the wagon, and she's really the instigator of the shootout because they're going to be robbing the gold. And uh, Ted and Phil get the gold. And this is also where Bert gets shot, and Mary seemingly leaves him for dead. Meanwhile, on another part of the desert nearby, Lou just sort of collapses, and his horse finds him. And then Bridget comes along, and we now have all these new characters. And it's just like, wait, these characters are meeting? They're cu- they have their own stories? Our movie has sort of like stumbled into their movie that was going on at the same time? It's like two different movies, and this is a third movie, and now math happens, and the rest of the movie is sort of sorting out how these different storylines interact. Because we get Bridget and Ray meeting each other and then we don't see them again for a little while and then it goes back to our like our first movie and we get this whole thing of like now mary's trying to get with ted and you know phil's being suspicious about the gold and all this kind of stuff and it's like okay well where are these other characters and who is this that keeps looking at them with this rifle and it seems like there's somebody out to get them Okay, what 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 is happening here? Please tell me what's going on. But I love when it keeps me in suspense like this because it's just super spooky. This mysterious person with the rifle, I'm just like, all right, is that is that Bert back from the dead? What's going on here? That mean harp playing with that rifle barrel, that diegetic harp that I did not realize any more than I think the three of us realized it was diegetic the first time we watched it. I was just assuming it was just just background noise. And then there's the rifle. Playing the harp. Was it the rifle? I thought it was the curtains. It was the rifle, but then they were gone by the time they they got there, and then it was the curtain play. Ah, okay. Yeah, it's that you know, it's that whole fake out. (laughs) It's the trying to have it both ways. But there are so many like spooky touches like that. Um, I mean, earlier I think it's when Bird is bathing, he keeps hearing sounds, and the camera's cutting, and then okay, it's it's the rabbit or like. Oh, there's the uh, you know the the swing moving. So there are all the all these you know hints that maybe there is a ghost. I'd be inclined to think there is one. And every once in a while, that rifle will just kind of sneak into through a window from outside and just be sitting there, sticking out. And it's like, okay, are you going to do anything or what's going on here? It, yeah, it is. It's really off putting. I love when you know it's at night when uh, the character we come to learn uh, is the old lady, we just see her shadow sort of like entering the saloon where everyone's sleeping. And it's it's like something out of like out of Nosferatu or something where it's just, it's like there's no body, it's only the shadow. Yeah, and this woman 
Gertrude Benson. We didn't say, but the town that they end up going to, you know, they all meet up, the, the four criminals, they all meet up in this town, and it's a ghost town. There's absolutely nobody there. But then we find that Gertrude was there, and she's the only resident, and she's like the town matriarch, because I noticed the sign that said Benson before we even see the, the hotel sign. This is, you know, welcome to whatever, Benson Town or whatever it is. There's a gravestone, isn't there? Yeah, it's like Benson this, Benson that, it's a bunch of Bensons. It's a Sarah Benson. So when she shows up, Gertrude Benson, she has this whole thing of like, I want to get the town going again. And really, when she finds out about the gold, it's just like, okay, great. I can restart the town. I'm just like, this is really weird motivation for you. But I can see where she's this kind of like voice of capitalism, like, give me the gold. I want to start my town going again. And I want to be the person in charge of everything. And the way she even speaks of it is almost a little spooky because she says the quote is my life ended here years ago and it's like well do you mean like figuratively your life ended when you know like people left the town and people died because you know your family used to have all this money or do you mean like literally you died and your ghost just hasn't left and they go on, they uh, like tear up all of her clothes and just are being a, a huge nuisance to her, tie her up. So we've got her kind of stashed out of the way. And that's when Gertrude and Ray show up. And, you know, we talked about the boomerangs, but Ray's paisley coat. Oh, my God. I, I love his coat so much. <laughs> and again, talk about not feeling appropriate to the era because it feels like I would see him dropping LSD into his drink before he you know, visits the go-go club or something. It just seems very 1970 to me. They may have spiked the water in that town with LSD. That would explain a lot of things. The trough... Maybe it just pours off of Bert's body since he's he's taking a bath in the town water supply. If the trough had LSD in it, that would explain a lot of the animal's weird behavior and the weird close-ups of, like, the horse's eyes. That horse is legit, though, yo. The way that it protects its owner. <laughs> I mean, because once Lou Costello shows up in the movie proper, it is just time to beat the shit out of him. We're going to beat him up here in the bar. We're going to take him outside. You know, the, he is just super desperate for water. We're going to tie him up and just keep him away from this water. He's going to crawl over. We're going to kick him away from it. We're going to whip him with a chain. It is just constant. Poor Lucas Dell is just being brutalized through almost his entire role. This Cannavari guy, is a, he's a sick guy. You're a sicko, man. You're sick. You're sick, Cannavari. He loves his torture. He does. Very effectively. Also, one could say he films a boomerang very effectively as well. Oh, yes. The rotating camera thing? Oh, boy. Jesus. That's a bit much. I mean, I appreciate it for what it is, as I'm sure both of y'all do. But, man, hopefully you don't get motion sickness. Well, there are even parts where it's not the boomerang, where he's doing right. this wild, almost 360 degrees with the camera, like shooting up into the sky. And you're like, wow, what is happening here? This is amazing. I forgot to mention when Ted is beating up Ray with the chain that we get a lot of backwards shots, like backwards and slow motion. So it's just adds to the trippiness of it, where he's 
whipping this guy, but it's all backwards. It's like, whoa, this is terrific. I mean, I, I like the camera work. I mean, you know, my jokes about the boomerang aside, I'm joking about it because it is it is so cool. But at the same time, if you're if you genuinely have an issue with fast camera movements, do not watch this end of the film because it will make it will make your head spin. But it, I, I, I like that. That's the the reason for having the boomerang ends up paying off in a cinematic way which I always find to be very cool when a film is able to use something in a way that not only makes sense to the film. I mean, the boomerang, it makes sense in that it's like a kind of an eclectic, interesting weapon, but also because Kanavari brings in this camera movement trick towards the end, it feels like it pays off. And that's something that actually works better in this than in the uh, Kill the Wicked's, because the, the, the character originally still has this like pacifist thing where he grew up the son of a preacher and he doesn't believe in violence. But in the original, he has a gun and he's like shooting people. But in this one, the fact that he uses the boomerang and, you know, he does kill people with the boomerang, it's at least a little kinder and more interesting. It's like, okay, you're, 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 you're just hurting people a little bit at a time and you just hit them a lot. Yeah, I love this whole, I'm a son of a preacher man. I learned different ways than everybody else. And he's like, yeah, that pacifist, but he, but they're going to have to pay. <laughs> after what they did to me, after what they did to Miss Benson, after what they did to this woman, they're going to have to pay for what they did. Okay, time to kick some ass. Especially once he gets that water, he's like a reborn. It's almost like he is, he is made new again and then gets to put on the Paisley jacket again and go out and give Ted what for with these boomerangs. It is so good. And before we get to the climactic scene, there's another new character who's introduced. Mr. Baxter. I believe it's Phil who goes to talk to Mr. Baxter. And he says, Mr. Baxter, you hired me to find that gold. And Mr. Baxter's like, well, now everyone thinks the Mexicans did it, so you're going to have to deliver it to me and, you know, my spread in Mexico. And there seems to be a little disagreement about how they're going to get the money to him. And yeah, it's like, where did this come from? Where is this Mr. Baxter character from? It's so, like, surprising that they were hired to get that gold. It just seems like that was their thing, is we're going to rob the stagecoach, but then that we find out that they're just guns for hire... It's kind of like when we found out that those men that saved Bert at the beginning were all for hire as well. And I think that's kind of a, you know, just letting us know that the same thing that happened to all of those banditos is going to happen to Phil and Ted and, and Bert and Mary after they give Mr. Baxter his gold. I don't think anyone involved really ever intended to give Mr. Baxter the gold. Mm -mm. And I don't think they intended to split it amongst themselves either. <laughs> No, there's no honor among thieves. Phil almost immediately takes the gold and hides it someplace. And so we've got, again, the looking. We've got Mary looking out of the window and then telling Ted about it later on. So she gets to pit Ted against Phil. And then we find out towards the end of the film that, surprise, Bert was not dead at all. That he's just been kind of laying low and letting them kind of hash it out and he's his plan i think was to swoop in and get the gold maybe get the girl and then off they go to wherever they want to go to i absolutely love the editing of this for one when mrs benson comes out with the rifle i kept thinking of lillian gish in the unforgiven and maybe that's just because older lady with a rifle but 
I don't know, she seemed to be having a Lillian Gish vibe. But they again do that sort of Leone, uh, good, bad, and the ugly cut between everybody's close-ups of their eyes. Everybody's ready. And then he keeps going back to close-ups of the donkey's eyes. Because the donkey is just in the middle of the road with the gold strapped to its back. And it's just like, oh shit, everybody's got a gun except for this donkey. And the donkey <laughs> looks a little confused, but also like, I want to get the hell out of here. <laughs> It's like those people that took the gif of uh, Eli Wallach and Lee Van Cleef and Clint Eastwood and then added, like, the cross-eyed cat. <laughs> you know? Oh, they just kept that. No, 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 Mike. You, you, it goes on forever. It goes on, I know. Say, it goes on farther even than that. I mean, that is the that is but the tip of that iceberg. <laughs> Can you all send me this gif? I think it, they start bringing in, like, characters from other movies. Uh, look, I mean, the Mexican standoff or the standoff or however you want to phrase it. In these films, it's not a requirement, right? But if you're going to do it, do it in a way that's interesting. I mean, make it your own. Make it your own. And it does enough to kind of let it stand out, stand out from the pack. Uh, but, you know, the standoff scene, in, I mean, every Western seems to have a standoff, you know, especially these spaghetti Westerns. So it's nice to see kind of Ari doing something really unique. Yeah, this seemed really self-aware and... I mean, almost a moment of, like, parody or satire. The donkey gets away with the gold. I think you're right. Ray's not about the gold. Nope. Mrs. Benson is completely about it. I mean, everybody is about it other than Ray. And Ray's just like, yeah, whatever. So when the donkey runs away, it's just like, hmm, okay. Bridget doesn't want the gold. She just kind of wants to survive. She She wanted no part of any of this. I feel very bad for her because she's brought into this situation and it's just like, hey, listen, I just lost my husband. I just had to shoot my horse, you know? <laughs> she's like the innocent bystander in all of this. And Ray is pretty much an innocent as well. But then they start beating him up and he's just like, hey, listen, I got to take care of business. I got to whip these boomerangs over at this guy and a couple other people as well just to take care of them. During when the shootout starts, which again has more of the crazy cutting and the camera work... Bert's in the middle of it, trying to get to the donkey. And that just is, like, so slapstick to me. It's I, I really like those, like, elements of humor, because they're... To me, it was, like, unexpected, because it kind of alternates between, like, we're going to be really serious and hard-boiled, now we're going to be really sadistic, now we're going to be really mysterious like a horror movie, now we're going to be really goofy. There's a moment when Gertrude's kind of given a little uh, speech there about how she wants the gold to rebuild the town. And he's doing this great thing where he's like zooming a little bit and then stops and then zooms a little bit more and stops and then zooms a little bit more. It's just like, wow, really makes the scene so much more intense than if he had just given it to her and let it be a close up of her. And then it's not even Ray, as far as I remember, that kills Bert. I think it's. it's her. Uh, it's her that oh, yeah, ends yeah, up shooting him it. in the back. Yeah. Shoots him in the back like the coward. She wants shoots that him down goal. like a dog in the street. She's not letting yeah, anything get shoot someone in the back, though. Oh, I'm not saying that I would do that, but I'm saying that's what she... She wants the gold. She doesn't want anything else. It's a pretty nihilistic movie. It's very nihilistic. We started with this city being a ghost town, and really the first city that we were in, our first town, ended up being almost a ghost town because everybody's dead other than that preacher and now here we are in this town and we even do like a check-in with the camera going from body to body to body just to show like everybody's dead again other than ray and bridget and they get to not necessarily ride off into the sunset they just 
kind of like, okay, see ya. They go their own way. Everybody was killed in this movie for money, and nobody gets the money, and the only people that survive never really wanted to be a part of this. I mean, that's pretty antithetical to the way uh, a lot of Westerns end, whether it's with revenge, whether it's with justice, whether it's with you know completing a goal or an assignment. There's always some sort of sense of something, and it's like, eh, none of this really means anything. Nobody really got anywhere. Nobody knows where they're going. The only people left are lost. And the money is on a donkey at the end. Mr. Baxter doesn't have a skull. That's the definition of nihilism, is that the, the reason that they're all here and they're all dead ends up not mattering at all anyways. And the donkey's probably pissed because that gold probably weighs a lot. And the donkey's just like, get this fucking money off my back. Let me into that LSD trough again. One of the things I love, you know, you're all talking about the camera sort of you know, looking over the dead bodies. And then it rises up to the Welcome to Benson City Hotel sign. And then the camera just sort of starts shaking left and right. And to me, that was really, really kind of a stirring, almost like disturbing moment. And I kept thinking that, is the camera taking, you know, a godlike perspective? Because it's almost like someone like shaking their head, like, tisk, 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 not happening today. Ah, look what we got here. And then it goes to black and we get music. For a couple minutes, if memory serves, no end credits is just the music playing over it. So again, kind of emphasizing how important the the score is to this. And it's not even, I did notice that it's not necessarily music by um, Mig Liardi. It is special electroacoustic music effects. It's a heck of a credit. It sure is. And I did check that's in both versions, the English and the Italian. But in Italian, it sounds much nicer. I would love to know about the background of this movie, and that's something I could not find online. There's not a heck of a lot about who this director is, what his background is, because clearly he's got a style. Clearly he wants to do some pretty radical things with the camera. And Chris, as you said, like you use the word cinematic, and it's like this is a very cinematic movie that really pulls on all the tools uh, of filmmaking from editing to camera movement, costume, music, sound effects. I mean, it's sometimes a little bizarre, the choices, but he's using them. Like, nothing is, you know, wasted in its effect. The way that I would describe the implementation of the boomerang in this film is it's very thematic in its nature. You have a boomerang in this film, you don't have to film it that way, but of course you're going to film it that way. Like, why wouldn't you? It makes the most sense. Is it the most logical way of filming? Nine times out of ten, no. But in this scenario, it makes perfect sense. They actually showed the boomerang flying at one point, and it actually seemed like a legit person threw it. Like, it goes, and then it starts to come back, like boomerangs are supposed to do. But then, of course, when he's actually attacking Ted with it, then you get the... Now we're going to pan over here, this kind of wild pan, and we're going to hear the sound of the boomerang, and then it'll be somebody just basically throwing it at Ted and him overreacting. But it's great. You know, that works. But it was very nice that they actually showed the boomerang flying at one point. It wasn't all just trickery as far as like, oh, just use a sound effect and do a swish pan. They don't exactly always stick to the 
circular 360 camera, which is nice because, again, it's as good as it is. It's a little much. Use sparingly, as they would say. As a prop. Like, when he goes and collects those after he's thrown them a bunch, those things are pretty hefty. Yeah. They got some nicks. It's just a cool visual, right? I mean, you got this guy walking over to the dead body, like, grabbing the boomerang. Like, yeah. That's cool. That's just a cool visual. I don't know if we talked much about it, but the ghost town itself is an incredible set. All the windows busted, weird... When, uh, you know, when, when they go into the, you know, the bedrooms, there's like the, uh, a cabinet with no doors that basically looks like a coffin that's standing up. So much dust everywhere. This, this is, uh, it's a real lived in town. There's one part where I think it's Ray is going through like an attic or a room or something. And there's all these cobwebs everywhere. And it's like, he, it's again, that horror movie kind of thing where he's breaking through the wall of cobwebs. It's a spectacularly visual movie. As we said, I would love to see this on Blu-ray. I would love to see a 35 print of it. To your point, I mean, the visuals open, the way the film opens the non-credited version, not the credits were slapped on in post, hyper-post version. That opening with that sun is just, it's spectacular. Canavari, he made, as far as I know, directed nine films over a period of 19 years. So it's like, okay, that's quite a while between some of his projects. Because when he started, he was going like 64, 65, 68, 69, 70, 74, 76, 77, 83. So it's like there was a little bit of a gap before that last one. But he's got at least one other Western that I know of. Por un dolero a Tucson Simore. So, but I would love to see that. That's only available in either a German dubbed version or an Italian dubbed version. So I would love to see that with subtitles. On IMDb, they, they say the translation is die for a dollar in Tucson. I, I, I couldn't track down a copy. I, I would love to see it. His last movie is strange, Killing of the Flesh. It, it seems that, you know, he did these two Westerns pretty early on and then he wound up doing more like you know, almost softcore sort of like art house erotic like exploitation movies. Did you know the, like I Emmanuel, The Nude Princess, which is a very strange movie. And then Killing of the Flesh is it's almost like it takes the uh, structure of a like a uh, you know an old mystery. You know someone has died and everybody shows up at the hotel for the funeral and the reading of the will. And then people start dying. But before people start dying, they start screwing. And there's just a lot of screwing. And then eventually people start dying, and then it goes back to the screwing, and then some more people die, and it goes back. And it's just mostly a lot of butts and boobs. Um, and clearly, like, that's the market this is intended for. It's just selling it for, you know, sleaze. But it has, like, once in a while, he'll do some, like, crazy visual stuff, um... Like in Gestapo's last orgy. I th oh, sorry. No, it's in The Nude Princess, which is, you know, a woman from a fake made-up African country comes to a um, trade summit, and everybody's more interested in her, you know, scandalous sexual background, and they're, you know, journalists trying to find out what's happening. Everybody's having sex with everybody, and it ends with an orgy with all the politicians. 
And then there's a bird flying around. He told me about this bird. He just keeps cutting to like close-ups like the bird's eye and the beak. And it's just like, is this bird actually part of the orgy? Is this some sort of metaphor? I don't really know. I hope the bird was okay. But yeah, he's just clearly, he still maintained that like psychedelic, you know, sort of surreal, extreme style. Um, I can't imagine people would have been that thrilled by seeing that in the middle of the orgy. If you came to actually see that type of content, you would, I can't imagine, they'd be satisfied. Maybe that's why he didn't make a lot of movies. The Nude Princess was put out by Mondo Macabro quite a few years ago, and it had extras and everything, so at least that one has something going for it. Matalo had one extra. It was an interview with Lucasell on that Wild East disc, though he barely talks about Matalo. It's more kind of like his career overall, and it's one of those frustrating things where he says, well, I told you about this already, and you can hear the cameraman say, yeah, you told us about it, but the camera wasn't on. (laughs) It's like, please tell us again kind of thing. So... It was an interesting interview, and I can't remember when they shot it, but he still had the baby face, even when he was however old he was, you know, 20, 30 years after this movie was shot, he still has that baby face. So it's just like, wow, you don't look like you've aged very much at all, sir. It's a very distinctive look. That's a guy that's, you know, you put him on camera, people are going to notice. And my God, I am so glad that you sent me Hyena in the Safe because that was so good. And it sounds kind of similar, the the idea of they're not necessarily getting together and screwing. They're getting together and screwing each other over. But it reminded me a lot of like Ten Little Indians where it's like, okay, we've got these people. They all want this thing, this safe of the title or bank vault of uh, the director. Uh, translation and they want this really bad and they have seven keys and okay we're going to kill off all seven of them at one point there's going to be one person who's holding all the keys how's this going to play out and i loved the way that they handled it i loved the main theme that they played quite a few times through it i love the use of the closer get cameras that they had just oh it, it it made me so happy watching that movie the other night. He has a he has a real you know knack for these sort of like ensemble you know multiple characters all sort of going against each other plots. As you, I think you summed you summarized it perfectly with sort of the Agatha Christie analogy, and I could see that he was trying to do that in um, the Killing of the Flesh. That mystery wasn't really the purpose of that. Movie. They at some point they sort of reveal you know why people have been dying and it's like oh okay no one really said enough dialogue to build towards this but um well there's that weird thing too in um uh hyena where the guy whose vault it is is kind of back he's this disembodied voice in a from a helicopter <laughs> up above and just like shouting at people down below about how you horrible and useless they are and i'm like is that really him up there i thought he was supposed to be dead it's it's almost like the voice beyond the grave or like the voice of god kind of thing because he's just hovering in this helicopter and seeing everything that's going on it's a really surreal touch yeah i wasn't expecting that thank you 
yeah, I would love to see more of this guy's stuff, and I would love to see just, you know, proper translations, nice transfers, all of that. And because he was all over the map with his different styles that he was doing, well, not styles, different genres, but then bringing his style to it each and every single time. And he's a Euro spy sort of, you know, 007 spoof, uh, Un Tango Dollar Russia, which I've, I, I don't know how to, how to see that. That's also available on Cinemageddon, but also not available in English in any form. I think it's they've got a rip from TV and maybe a um, uh, like from a VHS or DVD. But yeah, it looks like a DVD rip. But neither version has uh, English language options. Well, you know what they say: you're just gonna have to learn Italian. I tried. I tried a couple years in college. Didn't work very well. Same. I, you know, retain minimal. I should try again, though. I would say don't learn Spanish and then learn Italian because you'll end up like me and, like, speaking this weird amalgamation of both. That is exactly what happened when I had to go in for my Italian oral. I hadn't taken Spanish for several years, and I apparently was saying things that I correct in Spanish that I did not know that I knew how to say. They still passed me. Maybe they shouldn't have. Well, it's a romance language. Come on. I think they just took pity on me. Any interviews that I'm able to find with Cannavari are in Italian. So, you know, that might help out. There was, he was interviewed in 96, or at least the interview came out in 96 from an Italian magazine called Nocturno or Nocturna. And then Colin, you found a, an article or an essay about Matalo. But unfortunately, it was all in French. We were able to translate that through Google Translate. And really, it does talk about the film quite a bit, but it's more kind of positioning it in this like supernatural Western subgenre, which of which there are a few other things. Like the first one that comes to my mind is, was that Paul Wenkos movie, like Black Noon or something? There are other supernatural Westerns, but this one just screams out at me as as far as how great it handles the supernatural aspects. I will throw a uh, shout out to Mystery Ranch from 1932 with George O'Brien. That's a fun little spooky western. I mean, spooky westerns are, are... I love spooky westerns, but that's because there aren't enough of them. You have things like Grim Prairie Tales, which is... Oh, see, that's, that's an interesting movie. That's the word I would use. It is something... The poster alone, ladies and gentlemen, the poster alone. Not all of the short stories are as hold, you know, hold up. Some are better than others, but I like the uh, the sitting around the campfire bit. I think that was like the most well-written and well-filmed part. It's just, it, I mean, it's just, I like horror westerns. I just wish that there were more and there aren't. And, you know, then you get something like Jonah Hex, which is, you know, Ugh. right? But it's a horror western, like... What about The Living Coffin from 1959? It's it's a Mexican film. Don't know that one. I have not seen that one. That's good. I have it. <laughs> I assume if you're mentioning it, we should watch it. I mean, there's also Curse of the Undead, which Kino Lorber put on Blu-ray last year, which is pretty good. I keep thinking of horror westerns that also act as comedies. So I, I want to say, like, either the second or third Dust Till Dawn movie is set in the Old West. Oh, and then Robert I Patrick? Sure. Yeah, they like go. It's like a prequel thing. 
And I want to say even one of the Tremors movies is a uh, set in the Old West, so you've got the Tremors creatures in an old mining town kind of thing. So that was interesting. I liked that one a lot. It plays to humor more than horror, I would say. I just want to watch the Valley of Gwangi. I love oh, that. That's I, the classic. I rewatched that a couple of weeks ago. I've never seen it, but I would like to watch it. Oh, there's a there's a there's a really great Blu-ray of it. Um, if it's still in print, is it Cowboys fighting dinosaurs? Yes, I'm there for that. Then that's what Montalo needed. Just all of a sudden, you know, he's got his boomerangs and he's throwing them, and then all of a sudden he throws one, and a raptor just catches it in its mouth. I mean, that's that's what this movie clearly needed. Well, I think that's what the Jurassic World franchise really needs. Rather than cloned little girls, they need cowboys to show up. I, I agree. Boomerangs? Yes, please. <laughs> yes. We invented this new dinosaur technology. <laughs> I see Chris Pratt with a, with a boomerang. You yeah. know, why not? No, no, no. See here, they have the opportunity. They're making a third Jurassic World movie. Sam Neill shows up. And he has boomerangs, because he already has that cowboy thing going. That's right. And he probably knows how to throw a boomerang. And he can he can hit Chris Pratt with the boomerang. Yeah. Yes. I can see this. Several times. Oh, my goodness. That could be a really good, good ongoing everybody. joke. Not that I want actual Chris Pratt to get hit with a boomerang, because I don't wish violence upon people. But I think that would make for a good movie. It'd be better than that remake of uh, Magnificent Seven. Oh my, I remember when, I, Mike, I remember when you and I went in Toronto, when that movie premiered. That's right, what, 2017? Yeah, yeah, sounds about right, yeah. That was the, that was the year, that was Tiff's big thing that year. Oh god. was the Magnificent Seven. Yikes. I never understand why film festivals go for like, this is the movie that's going to open wide in three weeks, but we're going to premiere it here at the festival. What are you doing? I bet the dist- distributor pays them a lot of money because that's going to generate a lot of uh, pre-movie buzz and reviews. For that movie that got was no buzz and was terrible. Speaking of remakes, uh, I guess Mel Gibson is now directing the Wild Bunch remake and he's going to turn it into a gothic western? Apocalypto Bunch. <laughs> There's many movies that don't need to remake, be remade and clearly Wild Bunch, in my opinion, is one of those and of the people who least need to remake it would be Mel Gibson. I would go as far as to say that most films don't need Mel Gibson remaking them. I didn't mind Apocalypto, just for the record. I haven't seen it, and I would like to. It was actually pretty decent. Yeah, but like, I don't want him to make someone else's movie, is what I'm getting at. <laughs> like, He can make his own weird-ass shit, because Apocalypto is good and weird. It is a bizarre movie. I thought he was doing the sequel to Passion of the Christ. Wait, is Passion of the Christ sequel going to be The Wild Bunch? <laughs> I would watch that movie. I would watch that movie. Yeah, that would work. I mean, how many uh, apostles were there versus how many in The Wild Bunch? I mean, right? yeah. Which one no. is Borgnine? Is he Jesus? No, that'd be William Holden, right? Yeah, yeah. I think Borgnine might be Thomas. Does that mean the Robert Ryan character is Judas? That would be. Kind of already was. I, you know what? We This this movie's halfway planned out, and I just got to find the actors to do it. Well, I mean, they had some really good actors in that Magnificent Seven remake. Maybe get uh, D'Onofrio or, or uh, even Denzel back God, in there. They really did, right? What the fuck? <laughs> Ethan Hawke was really, yeah. Right? It's like so many good actors. It was, and it was Ryan just like, Reynolds. He missed that one. 
barely remember Ryan Reynolds. Was he in that? No, I was saying, where was okay. he? Okay. I'm saying. Yeah. Like, why, how did they not manage to ra- wrangle him into that one? I guess they already got their pithy white man. That was Chris Pratt. All right. We are going to take a break and play a trailer for next week's show right after these brief messages. Sick of those trivia podcasts that you don't even understand how to operate and they just have too many levers and buttons? There's got to be a better way. Now there is with Good Job Brain, an offbeat quiz show and trivia podcast that makes learning new things easy and fun. I just learned that artificial vanilla flavoring sometimes comes from the anal glands of a beaver, and now I can never shake that mental image. Thanks, Good Job Brain. Good Job Brain is available for the low price of just four easy payments of free. It's a podcast. Good Job Brain is part of Airwave Media and available on all podcast apps. Operators are standing by. Join me, Jamie Benning, on the Film Inventories podcast, particularly if you enjoy stories like designer Nilo Rodis Jamiro convincing George Lucas to push him around to help gain the support of his crew on the ailing Howard the Duck. Plam, the door opens, it's George. Everybody gasps. George makes a beeline to me. I'm literally back against the wall. Or hear puppeteer Tim Rose's emotional story behind that iconic Admiral Akbar shot in Return of the Jedi. I believe the war is something to be proud of, but not to celebrate. Or how Star Wars editor Paul Hirsch tackled cutting so many successful films. The thing that I learned from working with the Palmer is that tension depends on a clock. You need to have the sense that time is running out. Maybe Oscar-winning sound designer Mark Mangini's insightful chat about his work on Blade Runner 2049. Not a, not a single sound from the original Blade Runner in the new film. A great deal of inspiration. That's the Filmumentaries podcast with me, Jamie Benning. It's not easy having a good time. And it's not cheap either. Every week, the Projection Booth brings you a new show, possibly even two, focusing on all genres of cinema. If you've sat through the seven-hour Conan episode, the six-hour Star Wars episode, or even the hour-long Superb Man episode, you know that Mike and his co-host put forth a lot of work into researching the movies, tracking down the interview subjects, and putting together one of the best podcasts on the internet. Now I'm asking you if you can repay all that hard work by giving back to the projection booth. The show has a Patreon fundraiser at Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash projection booth. You can donate as little as a dollar a month. That's $12 a year. At least 50 great shows and two terrible ones. That's the price of two matinee tickets. Now isn't the projection booth worth it? Once again, that's patreon.com slash projection booth. Donate today. It's the right thing to do. Hey, do you like movies? Of course you do. You're listening to Mike White's phenomenal podcast, The Projection Booth. 
I'm here, however, to tell you about another movie-loving podcast, The Shameless Picture Show. My name is Michael Byers, and the show was created by myself and my good buddy in filmmaking, Nick Richards, in 2016 as a way for him and I to stay connected and to keep movies in our lives. Premise is simple. Each of us composed a list of shame filled with movies we've either missed, had no interest in, or just feel the other one should have seen. We've covered a wide range of films, from Heather's, The Godfather, The Exorcist, You're the Hunter from the Future, Phantom Tollbooth, a slew of amazing Vinegar Syndrome titles, and some that are not so good, plus our massive Rocky episode that features a new interview with Lloyd Kaufman himself talking about his friendship with John G. Abelson. And I personally can't wait for you to hear us enjoying the fight to keep film culture alive. You can find our show on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher Radio, and of course, SoundCloud. fa tremare i cacciatori di taglie quando lo incontra. Lo chiamano silenzio, perché dopo che è passato lui, resta soltanto il silenzio. Chi è quel tipo spiritoso col cappello da prete e con la pelliccia? Tigrero, uno che è meglio perderlo che trovarlo. Tratta di Tigrero, ha ucciso mio marito. Ditemi quanto volete. Senti, Muto, speri che io estraga per primo, vero? Perché non ti lascerò fare il furbo più di me? È un nemico dei Bounty Killer. È un illuso che crede di rimettere a posto il mondo con la pistola. Ma è venuto per uccidere te. Spaghetti Western Month continues with a look at Sergio Corbucci's The Great Silence. Until then, I want to thank this week's co-hosts, Chris and Colin. Colin, what is the latest with you, sir? I'm still trying to finish a uh, master's degree and become a librarian, but um, when I'm not doing that stuff, I am over at Pulp Serenade, www.pulp-serenade.com. The dashes because, thanks to Google, I wound up losing the old URL. But I'm there once in a while, hopefully more frequently later this summer. And Chris, what is new in your world, sir? A lot. I just can't talk about a lot of it. So the stuff that I can talk about, you can check out at cstashu.com. But I've been working on some interesting projects myself that I hope to get to uh, talk about later this summer. Uh, maybe even early fall. But for me, it's the culture cast as always. Mike and Cullen are both on there. Next month is, uh, next month is Richard and Cullen's first stab at programming a month of the culture cast. We're going to be talking about it's, it's not hot girl summer. What do they go? What is it? Hot girl summer? White boy summer? Why, it's not white boy summer. 
It's Burt Reynolds summer, baby. Oh, forgive me. I'm about to pass out. I'm, oh, I'm getting not, oh, I'm getting, oh, I'm overheating just thinking about this. Someone turn on the AC. Oh, dearie, dear. Yeah, next month is, is, is the beginning of Burt Reynolds summer. So bring your, uh, hairy chests and your magnificent mustaches because we're going to be talking about Burt Reynolds movies all month long. And you know who hasn't seen any Burt Reynolds movies except for Dukes of Hazard and Mr. Bean? This guy. So I'm excited because I have never seen Deliverance and I can't wait to watch it, which is not something a reasonable adult should be saying. I, I live in fear that I am going to let you down with these You're movies. Not, you already programmed a month. If it, and anyways, let's be honest here. I think Michael agree with me. If the month isn't successful, just blame Richard. Yeah, there you oh, go. Oh, I wouldn't do that. <laughs> you might not, but we would. Oh. Well, thank you again, guys, for being on the show. Thanks to everybody for listening. Please head on over to the website, projectionboothpodcast.com, where you can find out more about today's episode. You'll also find a link over to Patreon, where you can make a donation to the show. Every donation we get helps a projection booth take over the world. 